please turn to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. So we look at the fiery furnace. Stuttered Kennedy was a chaplain during World War II. He was often thrust into the front lines of battle, ministering in places of danger to his life. One day as he was going through France, he wrote a letter to his son, who was about 10 years old. And this is what he wrote to his little boy. The first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God keep daddy safe, but God make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you'd like to put in a bit about safety too, and mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards, for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what's right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also felt that way. Life and death are not really as important as doing what's right. A little bit of background. We're in the part of the book of Daniel that has a particular message for the Gentile world. And in the last chapter, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a great statue made of four metals. In that interpretation, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Well, in the next chapter, we find Nebuchadnezzar's made a great golden image said now we won't stop with this head of gold stuff we're going to take over the old statue the chapter divides easily into three parts first part is very similar to the last one actually is is about nebuchadnezzar and his actions specifically the golden idol the second is about the three israeli captives and their reaction and what they went through and then the last part consists of nebuchadnezzar's decree so that's how it'll break down so the fiery furnace Starting in verse 1, we see a description of what I guess you could call the Colossus of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the, pre the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of, of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the, the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of burning fire. Therefore at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So Nebuchadnezzar set up a golden image on the plain of Dura. Now the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, prefixes in his 18th year to verse 1. So if that is in any way accurate, that would indicate the event took place about 16 years after the dream in chapter 2. 
I'm not totally convinced of that, but it is interesting. That would put the event real close to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. However, neither the Aramaic that's in the, the original text and the, nor the Latin include that phrase. So it may be an add-on. On the surface, this event seems to me to be too closely tied to chapter 2, not to be related. I mean, first we're <coughs> the head of gold, and then we're the statue. The Aramaic word translated dura, by the way, means depression. It's from a Babylonian word, which means a wall. So basically it came to mean a city wall that was walled in, or an area that was walled in, surrounded by walls. And um, unfortunately it's the name of several places in Babylonia, so we're not really sure exactly where this was. There were places named Dur-Karashashu, Dur-Sharukin, Dur-Kurigskazalu, uh, Dur-Katilumu, etc. You know, all kinds of tongue twisters, but they all have one thing in common. Dur. <laughs> this reference is about as clear as talking about a place in California. Oh, it starts with sand. Any one of dozens of cities do, do that. So we don't know exactly where this was, but it had to be fairly close to Babylon, public place. Some have argued that the word translated image here is a general term, and it may mean something other than a human form. It might mean, say, an obelisk or something like that. See, a cubit is about 18 inches, and the statue being uh, 60 by 6 would actually be then about 90 feet high and about 9 feet wide. Well, that's pretty narrow. That's a little odd shape for a, a human form to be that skinny. Therefore, the dimensions may be something else, and that's why it would fit for an obelisk, but it wouldn't fit for a statue. However, you know, it could be that the statue included its base. So maybe it's got a huge base and then it's setting on that, and that would make the proportions more normal. Some have questioned this because they're saying, well, this thing is gargantuan, it's 90 feet tall. And do we know of anything like that? Well, yeah, the famed Colossus of Rhodes that was one of the seven wonders of the world, 100 feet tall. So this thing is not out of the realm of possibility. The image, however, probably was not solid gold. That would be an awful lot of solid gold. It was more likely overlaid with gold. As the sacrificial altar, the golden altar, was in the temple, it was wood with gold on overlaid it. Daniel's statement, though, that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold is almost certainly what inspired Nebuchadnezzar to make this statue. He didn't want to just be the head of gold. He wanted to be the entire statue. He wanted to be the whole thing. So if a little gold is good, more gold's better, huh? Interestingly enough, little mystery here, we're not told where Daniel is during this event. Just absolutely silent. Now, if you want to drive... Bible students crazy, you know, or any scholar, just leave them with, a, with an unexplained mystery. Because there are more explanations, more ink has been spilled, more paper has been wasted, more trees have been cut down, trying to figure out where Daniel is. And the short answer is the Bible doesn't tell you. So I, where was Daniel? I do not know and need to do any of the guys writing about it. There have been a lot of conjectures. The simplest explanation that I would submit as a possibility is that he was away on royal business. Uh, he was doing whatever the king told him to do and it was someplace else. But 
one thing that I think this does do for us is just another little small mark as to the authenticity of this book. Because what storyteller would have left the hero out of such a wonderful story of, of courage? If this were just something that they cooked up, then Daniel would most certainly have been there. He's the hero of the book. How can we leave out the hero? Well, it's simple. It's told this way because that's the way it happened. It is a sign of the authenticity of it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar assembled all the royal officials at the dedication of this image. The translation you have in the New American Standard about satraps, which is a, a Persian level of, of governorship, prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, that's actually the most accurate translation as far as we know. Some of these terms are Persian in, or, in origin. I mentioned satraps being Persian. Some have gone, well, hold it, this is supposed to be Babylon. There's an inaccuracy. Well, when did Daniel write this? book during the Persian Empire at the end of his life was when he compiled all this. So he simply was bringing the terms up to date. So that would be, would be expected. Estimates of the crowd that would have resulted are as high as 300,000. This is a lot of people being gathered together. And actually, interestingly enough, according to Jeremiah 51-59, it's possible that among them may have been King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Interestingly enough. But all these royal officials compile, uh, complied rather, with Nebuchadnezzar's command and they assembled for the dedication of the image. By the way, we know from history um, during the Assyrian Empire of similar gatherings where the, the king would draw together all of his royal officials. So that's not beyond the realm of possibility either. When Nebuchadnezzar's herald announced to those royal officials that as representatives of nations, peoples, and language groups, Nebuchadnezzar had a command for them. Looks like an occasion to administer what they call a loyalty oath. Or another term for it, since I'm in love with covenants, is a king-vassal covenant. Say, I'm your king, you're my subject, and you're going to swear to agree to these things because I've been so great, being, done such a great job of being your king. Uh, you're going to agree to do all these things, and by the way, if you don't do them, both the gods and I are going to make sure this bad stuff happens to you. But if you do do it, we'll make sure all this good stuff happens to you. Okay? Uh, we have an example of that in the Bible that we're very familiar with. The entire book of Deuteronomy is that type of covenant. Okay, almost the entire separate covenant at the end. But um, they were trying to consolidate their political power and their loyalty in his empire. And they used not just political means to do it, but religious means as well. Because um, So, Nebuchadnezzar was probably drawing all these people together as a test of loyalty. And they were probably then swearing to pledge loyalty to his kingdom. And as part of that, worship his gods. Nebuchadnezzar or ordered that when the music began, they were to immediately fall down and worship the image. That, that again would show you this event is not just political, it's religious as well. The word worship is used 11 times in this chapter, so it's a heavy theme. 
Some of the names of the instruments, by the way, are Greek in origin. Um, I've mentioned this before in the introduction. That isn't unusual either, since Greek traders and mercenaries were common in that area from the 7th century on. So it's really not too surprising. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had indicated though that there was a penalty also for disobedience. So we've got the carrot and we've got the stick. The stick here is summary execution by burning in a furnace. Anybody up for that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was what most of the crowd thought. Now, what kind of furnace is he talking about? Probably especially since there was some there was a wall there because the name means a walled in area uh, because they just built this huge idol probably a furnace for either smelting uh, metals or a furnace for for firing bricks one or the other um, these were basically dome shaped and had an opening at the top that functioned as a chimney openings on the side to shovel in wood and charcoal and a large opening uh, at the front to move things in and out like the metals you wanted to melt um, this is extreme the punishment of throwing people into a furnace but it's not unknown and we know that also from the book of jeremiah uh, chapter 29 verse 22 jeremiah prophesied because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Yipes. So Nebuchadnezzar was into extreme punishments. So when the music began, the result was instant compliance on the part of nearly 300,000 people probably. All at once, all those foreheads whacked against the ground. Everybody hit the dirt, you know, and praise and praise to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Probably the image of Nebu, the patron god of, of Babylon. Probably not Nebuchadnezzar's personal image, though maybe. You know, you don't know. But all of those people fell. You can just imagine the the whole area there, all those folks, and the music starts the Babylonian National Anthem, whatever that is, and then whew, they're all down on the ground, except for three guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're Babylonian names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're Hebrew names. Three guys standing out of 300,000 in the dirt. Kind of stick out like a sore thumb, wouldn't you? You know, who are those clowns over there? <laughs> you know? Well, that brought about a charge against them. You look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. The Chaldeans are an elite class. They are the they are the cream of the crop in Babylonian society, and they noticed 
those three guys standing and thought, here's our opportunity. So they brought charges against them. Now, the Aramaic phrase translated and brought charges against the Jews, it's a very interesting phrase. It means literally, they ate pieces of the Jews, is what it says, literally. Uh, they wanted to chew them up. Yeah. <coughs> it's been translated, they maliciously accused them, or they brought malicious accusations against them, or they slandered them. But they were just looking for an opportunity, and they jumped on it. They approached the king with extreme courtesy. They wished him a long life as is customary, not literally forever, but it's more like long live the king. And they reminded him of the decree to worship the golden image as a test of loyalty. The Chaldeans also reminded him of the punishment. I'm sure he hadn't forgotten, but they remind him anyway. And then they show their resentment. Their true callers come out. They show their resentment against these foreigners who had been placed in high office over them. You know, certain Jews that you have pointed over Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They accused them of disrespect. These men, as one translation says, these men have not shown proper respect to you, O king. They framed the whole thing as a personal affront to the king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you put these guys in high office and look, they don't respect you. You told everybody to kneel and to worship. They're still standing. See, separation of church and state was not a Babylonian idea. <laughs> okay? Most pagans saw no problem whatsoever in worshiping multiple gods. No problem. Just add a few more gods. Nebuchadnezzar would have considered it a... a eminently reasonable request that he was making. His thinking was very much, if you're loyal to me, you're loyal to my gods. It's that simple. Two blank sheets of paper? I gather I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> okay, that led to the coercion. In verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These, then these uh, men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, fl the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image I've made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He angrily summoned them... And they were brought before him. Our friend Nebuchadnezzar had a, an anger management problem, doesn't he? I mean, we've seen this in chapter 2, and here it is twice in this chapter 2. It talks about his rage and his anger and he's furious. He, get, he got hot. He got hotter than that stove did. Uh, it's been translated, you know, rage and anger has been translated in a fit of rage or raging fury. Yeah. Proverbs says the fury of a king is like a messenger of death. And that was sure the case in Nebuchadnezzar's case. You don't want to get him mad. So he asked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if it's true that they were committing treason by not serving his gods or worshiping his golden image. 
he seemed to be, even with his anger, he seemed to be incredulous that anybody would do anything so stupid. You're not really going to do this, are you? And I mean, we're talking heavy-duty coercion here, aren't we? <coughs> Come on, I know you three guys. You're smart guys. You're not going to do something this stupid, are you? You know, throw your life away over a matter of protocol. And even though he's angry, Nebuchadnezzar offered them a second chance. However, he also restated the punishment, okay? And rhetorically, he asked them a question that turns out to be key to the whole matter. He asked, what God is there who can, who can deliver you out of my hand? Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar is issuing a challenge to the God of Israel. That's not a good idea. Okay? God, God just doesn't like that because he's the only one who's worthy of being worshipped. And Nebuchadnezzar challenges God said, you know, I don't care who your God is. He can't save you out of my hands. I am, you know, he clearly thinks himself stronger than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Which leads us then to the next division where we're really looking at what is happening with the three Israeli captives. And they make a reply to him that's very interesting. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Pretty unequivocal, isn't it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were respectful, but they responded with civil disobedience, basically. They could offer loyal service to Babylon's king, but they could not offer service to Babylon's gods. That crossed the line. And they correctly discerned something that was absent in the first chapter. In the first chapter, the conflict they had over eating the king's food, the motive of the, of the officials, of the authority, was not to get them to sin. It was just that they'd be healthy. So they came up with a creative alternative. There are no creative alternatives here. Okay? Couldn't be. They correctly discerned that in this case, the authority's motive was nothing less than to get them to do the wrong thing. Nothing less than to get them to sin. And so, what response could they have? When you bump up against that one, you can't do it. You bump up against that one, disobedience is called for. Which, something as we as Americans understand, as our founding fathers said, disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. And, and there are times when it's that way. Therefore, they responded by refusing. There's an irony here too, isn't there? Because one of the Israelis was, his Babylonian name was Abednego. Okay, that means servant of Nepo. Okay, the chief Babylonian god. Well, there's the servant of Nebo refers, refusing to serve Nebo. Uh, he's, I'm not doing it. Or any other god besides the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now actually, they're obeying the highest authority here in this situation, aren't they? They're obeying God. God himself had commanded, you shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. And as the sign says, what part of thou shalt not did you not understand? You know, it's clear they can't do this. This is the very first commandment. Yeah, so no, well, second, I'm sorry. No other gods before me, no idols. So they responded that they could not dignify Nebuchadnezzar's offer of a second chance with an answer. We don't need to answer you on this one. They don't need to think about it. They didn't need to negotiate. They didn't need to, you know, pray about it. Well, that's, you know, let me pray about that and get back with you tomorrow. No, none of that. Look, it's there in the word. I got chapter and verse says don't do this. I'm not doing it. Moreover, they didn't plead for their lives. The phrase to give you an answer has been translated to defend ourselves. To pre present a defense. We don't need to do that. They boldly acknowledged God's ability to deliver them from the fire. There's no question of that. And when we find ourselves, because we did the right thing, heading into rough waters, heading into uh, tough times, you know, there's no question that God can deliver. And that answered Nebuchadnezzar's boast, didn't it? What God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? Well, their answer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. However, whatever the outcome, they were confident God's going to deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Think it through. I mean, if God miraculously delivers them, then Nebuchadnezzar's going to be shown to have had no power against them in the first place. However, if they give up their lives, then Nebuchadnezzar has no power beyond death. He can't do anything beyond killing you. And you go to be with God. I mean, the firing squad is over quickly. You know, the lethal injection is over quickly. Yeah, we're probably thinking, why are you talking so fanatical? Well, be, you know, in our day and time at the moment here, yes, we're pretty comfortable and we're not threatened by much. But you know, the 20th century saw more Christian martyrs than any other period in history worldwide. There are plenty of places in this world where being a Christian can get you killed. Okay? And, God forbid, but, you know, you never know where that can, where that can happen next. So, I wouldn't be presumptuous of our present-day comfort. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the one you should fear. Jesus also said, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. It's a paradox. You try to hang on to your life and all you do is empty your life of meaning. If you're willing to lay your life on the line, then you find out what it is to really live. Or as Jim Elliott who was a missionary to the uh, Indians in South America, who was martyred by those very same Indians he was trying to reach, he wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world keeps it for life eternal. So, either way, God's going to deliver them out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar does not have ultimate power here. I imagine that didn't help 
to calm Nebuchadnezzar down, did it. Yeah. Knowing his predisposition. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were prepared for the possibility that God might not miraculously deliver them. You know, the author of Hebrews, uh, in chapter 11, has what I call God's Hall of Faith, or Hall of Fame for Faith, rather. Um, he noted in verse 34 that by faith men quenched the power of fire. Who do you think he was talking about? Yeah, our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think. But they went on to say, nevertheless, they were determined. Yeah, whether our God delivers us or not, we're determined. We're not going to worship the king's golden image. We're not going to serve the, the gods of Babylon, no matter what. The author of Hebrews also noted in the very next verse, Hebrews 11.35, that others were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. You know, I think some of us would rather be whipped than laughed at. But mocking, hmm, that happens, doesn't it? Uh, yes, also, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And I love the parenthetical remark, men of whom the world was not worthy. God's perspective. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. It works both ways. Those are both heroes of the faith. The ones that God delivers because of their faith and the ones who, because of their faith, take a stand even though it costs them. Sometimes costs them everything. They're all heroes of faith. So... And obedience to God, more important than life. So, we're into the fire. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Nebuchadnezzar is in the grip of his rage. He's furious. You can see it on his face every time as he glared at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with murderous intent. Um, there's a little pun there. I, the Old Testament loves puns. Uh, the Aramaic word translated facial expression is the same word translated image earlier in the chapter, the golden image that he set up. Same word. And Nebuchadnezzar was so upset that they refused to worship his image, the idol, that his image, facial expression, was changed. thought that was funny. Um, his response was to order the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. Now, they could bring in bellows and put them at the, you know, at the sides where they introduced the, the wood and, and the 
coal and such. And with the bellows, they could superheat, make a blast furnace sort of out of the, the, the furnace. The maximum temperature they tell me that that sort of furnace can produce is around 1,500 degrees centigrade. Now, I think that would cook you pretty good. Uh, that's a lot hotter. That's a lot hotter, hotter than the 30 some odd degrees centigrade that we hit here in Texas. Um, but the king's not thinking rationally, is he? I mean, if you're mad at somebody and you want to torture them to death with fire, do you want a superheated flame or do you want a, a low flame? A low flame. Yeah, that's going to take longer to kill them. You dump somebody in a 1,500 degree fire, they don't suffer much pain very long. You know, they're gone. So Nebuchadnezzar's not thinking straight here. He's so angry. And, you know, it would have killed them instantly if it had killed them. But he commands several of his strongest soldiers to tie him up. And accordingly, they tie him up and they cast him into the flames. And it's irony, isn't it? The flames are so hot, who gets killed? The executioners. We killed the executioners. And they're thrown into the flame and they make a point, Daniel makes a point of pointing out to us they're tied up when they throw them in. Now let's look in verse 24 at the rescue. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and he said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies. Nor were their trousers damaged, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Not even the smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar got himself a shock, didn't he? I imagine his anger drained out real fast when he saw that. He looked into the entrance at the bottom of the furnace from a safe distance, I'm sure, and he's like, didn't we put three guys in there? And the officials respond, yeah, yeah. Well, how come I see four walking around? And they're loosed. The only thing the fire burned, their bonds. Yeah, it burned off their bonds, and that's all it did. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed that the fourth man looked like a son of the gods. That is some sort of supernatural being. Now, this may have been, and I think it is, uh, what they call a theophany. That's a, an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. I think that's who we're seeing. Um, in any case, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this in chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Yeah, God, God's promise of protection. So, Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to come out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they complied. And he called them the servants of the Most High God. 
that shows a little movement on Nebuchadnezzar's part, doesn't it? He started off, what God is there, O Savior, from my hand? And he fin finishes up calling them servants of the Most High God. Now, he's still not a monotheist, folks, because he still thinks the other gods exist. But he does see Israel's God as the best now. He's the Most High. He's the top dog. The top God. Sorry. A little dyslexic moment there. Um... <laughs> This is much the same as a Greek thinking of Zeus or a Roman thinking of Jupiter as the top of the, the, the hierarchy of gods. So he's not all the way there yet, but he is impressed, isn't he? And humbled. From proud Nebuchadnezzar who said, you know, who can, what God can save you from my hand to, oh my, your God's the top. Your God is the top. So all these royal officials that he had assembled, this huge crowd of Babylonian officials, served as highly credible witnesses to the miracle. This could hardly be denied. Now Nebuchadnezzar then, therefore, issued a decree. Which is, I'm sure, a large part of why Daniel included this in his book, because he wanted the Gentile world to be reminded that King Nebuchadnezzar had said, the following. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. Sounds familiar. Same thread as in chapter 2. Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver this way, then the, God, then the king rather caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar blessed God. He praised Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually for disobeying him. He said, you did the right thing, disobeying me. He acknowledged their stand was correct and admired their courage for being ready to die rather than serve any god but their own god. Nebuchadnezzar decreed that none were to say anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under pain of dismemberment and destruction of their house. He liked that one. That was his favorite punishment, I think, next to roasting people. So he saw to it that they prospered in their administration. Similar incident occurred, you all are familiar with the Roman Emperor Caligula, uh, little boots, but anyway, he was, he was nutty. And Caliglia one time decided he wanted his statue placed in the temple. Well, the statue made it as far as, as uh, Caesarea in, uh, on the, on the, the uh, seacoast of Israel. And thousands of Jews swarmed to Caesarea and they basically told, uh, told the Romans you're going to have to kill us all to put that in the temple we're not going to do it you know, and they literally laid down and offered their necks go ahead, cut right here you know, it was so many that it would overwhelm the Romans you know, the idea of slaughtering even that many was repugnant even to the Romans and the net effect was the statue stayed in Caesarea for quite a while, then it got moved to Syria, and then, you know, taken out of commission when Caliglia died. So it never got placed in the temple. Why? 
because several thousand Jews were willing to give their necks to the sword rather than sin against their God. So, how do we apply this? Well, uh, there's a personal level here, I think, that's, that's obvious. See, God ordains government. He, Romans 13 says that. And, you know, it's better to have a government than to have anarchy. But authorities can abuse their power. They can order things contrary to what God commands. And when that happens, a believer has to do what Peter said in Acts 5. They have to obey God rather than man. It's simply a case of going with the higher authority. So, when the believer disobeys that authority in order to obey God, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, we should be willing to accept the consequences, whatever happens. But that is called for. I think there's also a prophetic significance to this passage. I don't think it's in a book of prophecy by chance. Because during the tribulation, a Gentile world ruler called the Antichrist or the Beast will demand that he's to be worshipped as God. That's all in 2 Thessalonians 2 and in Revelation 13. Most of the people of the world and many in Israel are going to give him that worship. But there will be those who will refuse. There will be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that day also. And he will kill those, or seek to kill them, those who refuse to worship him, and he'll turn on Israel. But his career is going to be cut short by Christ's second coming. So this is in a way a foreshadowing of events in the future, but it's also a foreshadowing of events in our life. At some point, your faith will be tested. Maybe not by a government persecution. Maybe by a moral decision. Maybe by circumstances in life. But at some point, your faith will be severely tested. And at that point, you need to decide, no matter what the outcome, life or death, to do what God says. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the examples of these three men. We thank you for the faith that they showed in you. And Lord, just pray that that same commitment be in our own lives to do the right thing, even if it costs us, even if it costs us our very lives. May we know deep in our hearts, Lord, that we are always safe in your hands, no matter what the outcome. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.